0: The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tipp City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning, welcome to the best of the book, NutCon WYSO, our second program of 2024. We're going to go back to 1998, my only interview with a guy named Bartle Bull. If you uh, go in and Google him, Bartle Bull, you'll come up with a Wikipedia entry for his father, also named Bartle Bull, a very famous guy, and his son, Bartle Bull III, another famous guy. Well, Bartle Bull in the middle, should be famous because he's a great writer. And back in 1998, he had the second book in what became a four-book series. And it's set in Africa, and we talked to him about it. It's called Café on the Nile, on the best of the book nook.
1: I was born in London at the beginning of World War II. My father was English, my mother was American. And he went off to fight in the British Army in Libya and, and Egypt and Ethiopia. And my mother and my sister and I came back to the States when I was a baby. And uh, then I often would go back to England after that. And my father finally got shot during the war in uh, North Africa fighting the Germans. And, um, and my grandfather, my English grandfather, had also been a great friend of writer Haggard and of Kipling. Uh, Haggard, as you know, was the guy who wrote King Solomon's Mines, the first great African novel. So I was always, you know, brought up with, with this notion of Africa And I went back there first when I was a young man, when I was at college, and wrote my thesis at Harvard on the history of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, as you know. So I've been going back to Africa probably 30 times since then.
2: I understand you've also been involved in some publishing ventures.
1: Yes, uh, that's true. Um, I used to be a young lawyer at one time in New York, and I left my law firm, and a friend of mine and I uh, took over the Village Voice, the weekly newspaper, and I was a publisher of the Voice for a while. And the director of New York Magazine, and I started the magazine in California and a couple other things.
2: You've also um, spent some time in the ivory towers of academia.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true, too, uh, both at Oxford and at Harvard and Harvard Law School.
2: Well, this is quite a book. I haven't read your other books, but uh, give us a little background. You wrote a book called The White Rhino Hotel, I understand.
1: Yes, that was my first novel, which I did in 1992, and it was set in Kenya um, in about 1920, just after the First World War, when the British were settling um, former British soldiers in Kenya. And I introduced in that book a few of the characters who who are now with us in the new book, but they're both totally independent books. But uh, the White Rhino Hotel was a hotel in the north of Kenya, and it was the hotel where the old White Hunters used to go and stay, actually in real life and I took the title from the original Old Hotel. And it was up in the frontier in northern Kenya, and was a very picturesque, uh, sort of eccentric place. And and I set the base of my story there with people coming and going. And that was my first novel about six years ago. that was published in England and the States.
2: My guest is Bartle Bull. His new book, published by Carolyn Graf, is Café on the Nile. And the Café on the Nile is really the center of the intrigue in this book, is it not?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, It's on a houseboat on the Nile, And there are actually a few restaurants and bars on houseboats on the Nile, but it seemed to me that that was a very uh, good setting for the types of characters I was having drifting through this tale.
2: And the proprietor of the cafe is a very interesting fellow.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. He's a very mischievous, uh, very wise um, man. He's a dwarf um, from Goa, which, as you know, is a Portuguese colony in India. Uh, which used to export a lot of uh, people in the uh, restaurant and service business to various other British colonies around the world, such as Kenya. And um, in my story, I have this, this dwarf who is, who is half Portuguese, half Indian, um, living in um, Egypt and running this cafe on the Nile. And he likes you know, you know, being the host there, being the center of intrigue, and he's a very ambitious, uh, scheming, rather naughty guy.
2: And he's also quite the entrepreneur.
1: Yes, he is. And uh, the two big um, uh, sources of interest in Egypt, really, are archaeology and water, because the water of the Nile River, as you know, is a source of all life in Egypt. It never rains. And so whenever they can build an irrigation canal from the Nile, that's the beginning of new fortunes or the end of old fortunes. And so the dwarf gets involved in a dispute over where the next irrigation canal will be going off the Nile into the Egyptian desert.
2: And this story transpires in the mid-30s, which was a time when Africa was really changing significantly. That's
1: right. Exactly. I mean, at that time, there were only uh, two countries in Africa, Liberia and Ethiopia, which were not colonized by European countries. And Mussolini, in 1935, wanted to invade Ethiopia in order to have an Italian colony in Central Africa, And so, believe it or not, uh, you know, during the Depression, when Italy was a very, very poor country, 500,000 Italians, um, of whom 400,000 were soldiers and 100,000 were farmers and road builders, 500,000 Italians came through the Suez Canal, uh, paying a couple of of francs each to the French to get them through the Suez Canal, and they invaded Ethiopia. And my story is a sort of romantic adventure set against that historical time.
2: And in truth, the... uh... Abyssinians fought very hard, but they were overwhelmed by the modern weaponry of the Italian army.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, the Ethiopians were a very proud, uh, tough people, half Christian, half Muslim. Uh, they themselves had been a very dominant force in Central Africa, were very warlike, but they had simple weapons, occasional uh, one-shot rifles, that kind of thing. And the Italians invaded with tanks and aircraft um, and uh, 400,000 soldiers, and ultimately, when the war got very, very tough, the Italians used that terrible thing, poison gas. Which was against the rules of the Geneva Convention. That's exactly right. After the First World War, when there was a lot of poison gas used in the trenches, as you know, in in Europe, um, uh, gas was outlawed by the League of Nations and the Geneva Convention, and Mussolini concealed the fact that he was using it. And had that fact got out, uh, they probably would have closed the Suez Canal and thereby isolated uh, half a million Italians in the middle of Africa. So it was essential to Italy not to reveal that they were using poison gas against these barefoot uh, tribesmen in the hills in the middle of Africa. And so my story largely turns about that, around that fact, the use of gas by the Italian army.
2: Now, I understand you did some extensive research to uh, get your settings right. Didn't you read a lot of old newspapers?
1: Oh, yes, I had a lot of fun with that. I actually... Um, went to a library outside on the edge of London where they have these old colonial newspapers. And I read uh, three years, from 1934 to 236, of the daily English-language newspaper of Cairo. Because, as you know, Cairo at that time, was a very, very sophisticated place with, uh, for example, newspapers in Italian and French and English published every day. And... I read them for three years and learned so much about daily life, I would get totally absorbed in it. I couldn't just follow my own stuff. I ended up you know, reading what life was like in Egypt, and it really got me into the details of life there. I also did the, one of the things I really enjoy about this type of fiction, doing the work, is both the academic side of that sort of research, but also, in the case of Ethiopia, I wanted to cross the country myself on the ground and... Uh, trace myself on the ground, the actual route that my heroes would take, my characters would take, as they fled across Ethiopia from the Italian army, the women and men who were on my safari in the book. And so that's why I was able to sort of smell the dust and see the plants and understand the animals and the people and all that.
2: So did you drive the route?
1: Uh, Mostly, yes. Yes, I I hired a guy in a car in um, Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. It was a very difficult time about five years ago. As you know, they've had 30 years of civil war and Marxism in Ethiopia. And now, in fact, there's a war going on next door with Eritrea with the Ethiopians. So it was still a pretty dicey time. But but, um, uh, I did the exact route, yes, that that the characters take in the book.
2: Oh, my. That must have been a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I I was both sorry when it ended and also a bit glad when it ended, if you know what I mean.
2: My guest is Bartle Bull. His new book is A Cafe on the Nile. It's been published recently by Carol and Graf. Your book is full of heroes and villains, and uh, a lot of characters are very well drawn. You have so many different characters going in and out, but one of the primary characters, really uh, one of your protagonists, is Anton Ryder. Tell us about him.
1: Yes, well, actually, I took the name Anton Ryder, the name Ryder, From um, was the first name of Ryder Haggard, as I mentioned, who was the first great African novelist in about 1890. He was a great... I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, and Winston Churchill both said that their favorite book as a young man was Ryder Haggard's book, King Solomon's Minds. And so I took the name Ryder from that and called my hero Anton Ryder. And um, he, in my story, uh, was raised by gypsies in England. His mother had a gypsy boyfriend. I wanted... I wanted him to be not a predictable uh, member of any English uh, class, and so I thought I'd have him raised in a whole different way. And the gypsies were very, very good about animals and very good about nature, and so that gave gave him a very good preparation for going to Africa and becoming a professional hunter. And so I have Ryder as a young man going out to Kenya, and then... In my story, by the time the Captain Nile takes place, uh, Ryder Haggard is a professional white hunter, so-called, taking out safaris in the African bush. And he gets involved in a safari with some rich American clients, uh, two beautiful twins from uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, they're on safari in Ethiopia when the Italian army invades Ethiopia. And uh, Ryder then has to use all of his skills as a a man trained by the gypsies as a survivor to uh, get his clients and himself out. And meanwhile, he gets involved in a, in a fight with um, some Italian officers who, who uh, chase him all the way across Ethiopia, one of whom is having an affair with uh, Ryder's w- wife back in Cairo. So it's a complicated uh, romantic adventure set in this uh, time. You
2: really have so many elements here. You have war, you have intrigue, violence, love, sex love and sex <laughs> I hope so <laughs> I guess I'm I'm distinguishing between love without sex and sex without love but you also have them together I hope so it, it's a great love story well, it really thank is you very
1: much no I think that's a very important theme and um, I've had a lot of comments from women about the book who who really have um, enjoyed apparently the the romantic spirit of it because I am a bit of a romantic myself. Uh, Uh, not always successfully, I must say, but I am a romantic myself, and I really um, believe in the idea of a true love, of a great love, and that is part of the story.
2: You follow this uh, Italian, uh, was he a colonel?
1: Yes, Colonel Grimaldi.
2: He's a very interesting fellow.
1: Well, the the Italians, you see, had a long tradition in Ethiopia, and what happened originally was was that 100 years ago, in 1896, an Italian army invaded Ethiopia, but was slaughtered by the Ethiopians, uh, something like 30,000 Italians. And it was the only defeat in African history of a a large modern European army by a so-called backward people. And um, Mussolini was determined to avenge that victory, I mean, that defeat of the Italians. And so 40 years later, in 1936, he invaded Ethiopia, very much trying to show Italy that he could avenge their past defeats. And so I have this character, Colonel Grimaldi, whose father... 40 years before, had, had been in this um, contest that the Italians lost in Ethiopia. And so the colonel comes back to Ethiopia to get his own personal vengeance. And so that gives him a very strong motivation, as indeed many of the Italians did have who were there in real life. And then secondly, he is the lover of Anton Ryder's uh, separated wife. So we have those two themes, both the war and his, his um, personal conflict, that, that, that bring him together with Ryder.
2: Now, in a work of such imagination, uh, clearly you did take some artistic license with history, and you do have a note about that at the end of the book. I was curious, uh, were Mussolini's sons really involved in this campaign?
1: Yes, they were. Now, that was absolutely entirely accurate. Mussolini's two sons and also his son-in-law, Count Ciano, who became Italy's foreign minister later, all three of those young boys, um, uh, one of them was very young, 17, uh, were in the Italian Air Force, which was called the Regia Aeronautica, and they all flew in bombers over Ethiopia and, indeed, uh, dropped bombs on these villages.
2: You also seem to have studied in detail the uh, weaponry and machinery that the Italian army was using.
1: Yes, I have. I have uh, good friends who were were involved with the uh, Beretta Company, which is the world's oldest manufacturer of firearms, founded in 1516. And Beretta, as you know, uh, made the pistol that General Schwarzkopf carried in the Gulf War. And they also made almost all the small arms and machine guns used by the Italian Army in um, World War II and in Ethiopia. So I was able to get a lot of help from them on the scholarship of the weapons. And then for the old airplanes, I went to a wonderful old airstrip in upstate New York where they have antique fighter planes called the... the um, Something, Aero Club, I'm sorry. And uh, there I found these old characters who were great scholars of old airplanes, and that's how I got all those details correct.
2: As a reader, I've been reading a lot of books uh, over the last few years, and reading this book transported me back to that feeling of wonder and total suspense that I used to get when I was very young reading a really great adventure story. Thank you. I just I could hardly put the book down, and I had to think that it had to be as much fun for you to
1: write it. <laughs> well, it really was. It's one of those things, as Dickens always said, that he, he he was always sorry to finish one of his novels because he he would lose touch with the characters. And I must tell you that it did combine so much for me. My own experiences in Africa. I have friends of mine whose you know certain details of their lives are built into these things. Uh, being there, going back to Ethiopia, going back to Egypt. Uh, doing the work with the newspapers. For example, there's a scene in the book where, a, where Anton Ryder, the hero, is uh, mauled by a, by a black leopard in the mountains of Ethiopia. They have special leopards that have almost no spots that are very, very black. They're called melanistic. And uh, that actual incident um, took place precisely uh, with a friend of mine who's a professional hunter still in Africa, Robin Hurt. And when, it, when he was mauled by a leopard and his gun bearer um, uh, was out of the scene, and he was actually wrestling on the ground and had about 300 stitches on his body afterwards. And, and that scene you know, always brings back my friend to me when I read it myself. And um, throughout the book, I do have real details of African history that I've had some contact with.
2: Reading the book, you keep seeing it unfold in a cinema, I think. Uh, in fact, there's even film involved in the story. Is this the kind of a book you think might end up on the big screen?
1: Well, that would be very exciting, Um, and indeed there are three studios now who have shown some interest in it and who who, who are talking to my my agent in California, but it would be quite an expensive film to make. That's the problem, of course, because it's it's set 60 years ago, it's in Africa, and involves a war, and those are all pretty uh, costly ingredients. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest problem we're going to have, but otherwise there does seem to be some interest, yes.
2: I think Steven Spielberg could handle it. I
1: do, too. I think he'd be perfect, wouldn't he?
2: I had to keep thinking of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and films like that with just the incredible uh, things that happen in your book, just the unfolding of the story and the convergence of characters repeatedly. I don't want to give away too much about the book, but you have the feeling as you're reading the book, oh, yeah, I bet they run into so-and-so somewhere, and (laughs) it's very satisfying when they do meet up repeatedly with different groups of people.
1: Oh, good. I think I think if you enjoy the characters, that makes all the difference. Um, and I always enjoy the different nationalities that seem to be able to work into these stories, because Cairo in those days, in the 30s, really was an incredibly sophisticated, cosmopolitan, uh, sort of passionate, sexy place. And there were people from all over the world there. That's why I was able to bring together my German uh, friend of the hero, uh, the Italian villain, uh, the Egyptian characters, uh, because that was a a plausible setting, to have all these exotic you know, characters in one place, and to have them all struggling with life as they, were, as they are, the way we all do.
2: Even the peripheral characters are uh, drawn in some detail. Penfold is, is quite a fellow.
1: Yes, yeah, so well, old Lord Penfold uh, frankly reminded me of um, my father's brother's uh, father-in-law, who was an old, very distinguished Englishman called Lord Cranworth, who, who um, in real life had founded the original White Rhino Hotel. And when I was a young boy, I used to go and stay with him in England, and, but then he was a very old gentleman, and he taught me how to play croquet and taught me also a lot of old stories about Africa. That was one more threat I had to Africa when I was a young man. And so when I described Lord Penfold's ways, um, his combination of being very gentlemanly and yet a very strong, loyal friend, but at first seeming very quiet and diffident, but actually being very strong underneath that, I had old Lord Cranworth in mind when I, when I depicted Lord Penfold in the book. And, indeed, his, his grandson is now a friend of mine, uh, the present Lord Cranworth. But, but uh, some of those old characters really just don't exist anymore, and I, w- I wanted to get a sense of what they were like, those old-timers, in this, in this story.
2: My guest is Bartle Ball, and we're talking about his current book. It's called A Cafe on the Nile, published by Carol and Graf. This is the second book that I have uh, done on my program from Carol and Graf. And I'm getting the feeling that uh, Carol and Graf is, is a pretty unique house in publishing. Can you tell us about them? Yes.
1: Yes, you know, you're absolutely right. My previous two books were published by Viking uh, Penguin, Penguin in England and Viking in the States, which is a marvelous publisher. But those large sort of conglomerate publishing companies um, have got to the point where they tend to give the individual author less and less um, a p- a personal effort unless... You're doing something that is obviously uh, contemporary and sort of with it. If you're doing something that's more exotic and more original and may or may not work, that takes a bit of a chance on the part of the publisher that's a bit of a gamble, then you're normally better off catching the imagination of one of the smaller houses, of whom there are fewer and fewer, or of a particular editor, of whom there are also fewer who really edit, you know, in the old-fashioned sense of really working with the book as opposed to just marketing it. And in my case, I've been very pleased with Carolyn Graff, and they have a they have a special affinity for um, what, what you might call old-fashioned romantic adventure and for stories of, of the outdoors and of history. Uh, for example, they've done a lot with Shackleton, the great explorer, you know, of the Antarctic. And they're willing to take a chance if they believe that the book has a sort of passion to it. And I think that's what they saw in my book.
2: I first heard about the book when I saw it reviewed in the New York Times back in December. Yes. Living there in New York in in the uh, milieu of publishing, that must have been a good feeling when you saw it reviewed in the Times.
1: Yes, it really was, because the Times reviews about one new novel in 35, and they did not review my previous novel, which, uh, however, got very good reviews from the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, but, but it was not covered in the Times. This one was not covered in the Washington Post or the Boston Globe, and then got this really uh, wonderful review, I must say, in The Times. It ends up saying, um, Mr. Bull's spirited, sensuous, hot-blooded evocation of a rich and eventful historical world. I mean, I wish I'd written that myself. (laughs) Um, uh, The Times is very, very generous, actually, and um, saw, I think, a lot of the things you've mentioned, Vic. You know, they appreciated the, the complexity of the book, the history, um, and it's rare today, by the way, to find a critic who, who values research, who values history.
2: Well, when I saw the review, I immediately chased down your publicist and tried to set up this interview, and now it's come to fruition today. Have you done many interviews for the book?
1: Um, I've, I've done some, and um, I'm looking forward also to hopefully doing some in England when I get a publisher over there. I think that should be in a few months. Uh, But by the way, this uh, tradition, I should mention, is is going on. My son has a book coming out on Siberia in um, April, and uh, he also has has, uh, caught the bug of his international adventures. Is that a novel? No, it's a report of his... A horseback expedition to Siberia, where he, he rode in from Mongolia on horseback and rode uh, 2,500 kilometers around the biggest lake in the world, which is in Siberia. It's bigger than all five of our great lakes together. And he was the first person ever, ever to uh, ride a horse around the biggest lake in the world. And that's what his book is about.
2: So uh, you gave him the bug. <laughs>
1: I'm afraid so, yes.
2: <laughs> well, it's gotten to the point where you really have to uh, go far afield to find places to explore, and it sounds like he that's found true. a good one.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, it was quite amazing. I mean, the Russians had never allowed anyone in before to do that kind of thing, and he was sponsored by the Russian Academy of Sciences because he did an, an environmental study of the lake, and he was he was also the uh, youngest person ever to carry the flag of the Explorers Club, of which he was the world's youngest member, and uh, uh, that was a great thing.
2: Tell us about the Explorers Club.
1: Well, the Explorers Club is the, um, uh, really, it's the international center of um, exploration, both in terms of the sciences and, for example, uh, whether it's going into space, most of the astronauts, all the early astronauts, members of the Explorers Club, or into the oceans, you know, you know the new deep-dodging research in the oceans. Uh, the, the chairman of the Explorers Club is Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man, as you know, ever to climb Mount Everest. And uh, he's a friend of mine and is still a wonderful old man. He's, he, he's a New Zealander, as you know, but he comes to the States once a year. The Explorers Club is headquartered here in Manhattan. Uh, Lowell Thomas used to be the president many years ago. There are about 2,500 members all over the world, and they collect uh, data from their trips and expeditions all over the world, and they have half a dozen flags which go out with each expedition. Wow. Yep.
2: And you're a member as well.
1: Yes, I am, yes.
2: Well, this book, it just has so much in it, and without giving away too much uh, I was always intrigued by the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, and I think you really chose a great period to, to write about.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, I can tell you how nice it is after all these years of homework and research and work to have someone care about these things. It's very important to writers.
2: Well, it's got that feel that books used to have.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, have you I mean, that old spirit of adventure and romance? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great thing. I, that's, that's exactly what I would like to have achieved.
2: I mean, so many books now are just such quick reads, and there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot there. And you just go into so much depth and detail describing the characters, the places, the adventures that they're having. And it really took me back to another day.
1: Well, thank you very much. I mean, those are the things I care about. And I, I spend a lot of my time uh, collecting books and uh, diaries of these periods and these places, traveling to them, making friends there. And every now and then you get the chance to, you know, put all together. And it, I spent four years on this book, about almost two years researching and then a couple of years writing. And so it's, you know, really is so satisfying for a writer when finally it does work. It's a great blessing.
2: Now, what's next for you? Are there any more books on I'm the horizon? A, I'm afraid
1: there are, yes. I'm, I'm working now on what would be more or less a sequel to this book, although a freestanding novel again, uh, which, would, which would take place uh, during World War II in North Africa, um, the campaign there, which began in 1940 when Rommel... And also, the Italians fought the British when, when the Germans were trying to uh, take over um, Egypt and the Sudan and Libya and all that. And then, um, ideally, they were going to have the um, um, the the two pincers of the German army were meant to be one coming down through Russia, through the Ukraine and Turkey, and then one through Egypt into the Middle East. And they were then going to take over the oil fields of you know of the Middle East. And and that's what that conflict was all about. uh, That and control of the Mediterranean. And so my next novel will be set um, in Egypt and Libya, against that background of the German Italian um, attack into Egypt. My father uh, was in the British Army in World War II and was in Egypt in that campaign.
2: Was he so, under Montgomery?
1: Yes, he was. Yes, yes, sir.
2: I hear Montgomery was quite a character.
1: Well, he was. Yes, he <laughs> was. He he wasn't as much of a character as a German general Rommel, as you may as you may know, but but he was also very demanding, very eccentric. listened to no one else. Uh, Knew what was right. Uh, was always up, and he wasn't as much in the front as Rommel was. Rommel was always absolutely up in the front lines. Very often he would fly his one-man airplane, a stork, and and uh, he he was always up where the action was. He led from the front. and was really a great man. The British respected Rommel very much, and I would I would use him in this new novel as well.
2: And uh, Rommel's downfall was when he decided to be part of the plot against Hitler.
1: That's right. Exactly. I mean, he he never was a Nazi. And he was relieved not to be in Europe, but to be fighting in Africa and not to have to deal with the Nazi command and all that. And then uh, when things went badly, finally in North Africa, which, they, which really happened after the American invasion of uh, Tunisia and Morocco, then Rommel went back to help Hitler defend the uh, Normandy area in the expected invasion. And he got drawn into the anti-Hitler plotting because he was, he was not a Nazi. And, and finally he, he committed suicide.
2: My guest has been Bartle Bull. The book is Café on the Nile. And how's the book been doing for you?
1: Well, really, it's been doing very well. I've been very excited. Uh, at, everywhere it's been reviewed, it's done very, very well. There are a few cities where it hasn't been reviewed, such as L.A., where I have a bit of a gap, but uh, we don't know how much they really read in L.A. I, I, I do wish they'd read this, but it has done well wherever it's been, um, you, you received any critical attention at all. So I'm, I'm very pleased.
2: Well, we really appreciate you taking time to uh, speak to our listeners here in Southwest Ohio.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, and I thank Ohio. Thank you, Vic.
0: That was Bartle Bull on the Best of the Book Nook, recorded back in 1998, my only interview with him for his novel Cafe on the Nile. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, Southwest Ohio's musical home for joy, contemplation, and community. And I googled Bartle Bull. I wanted to make sure... He is still with us. He is. He's in his mid 80s now. And that was the second book in what became a four book series. And the final book in that series came out in 2016. And I'm guessing that that book uh, we just heard about is probably out of print because the publisher went out of business about eight or nine years ago. So uh, if you're looking for it, it might be just available use, but it's really worth tracking down. For the best of the book nook, that was Cafe on the Nile by Bartle Ball.